0: All right, for the next few minutes I want to go to Genesis 29 and continue our series in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, I have worked to try to shorten the sermon a little bit today. Uh, and so I look forward to looking at this though with you and uh, encouraging you from it. Genesis chapter 29, uh, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to read it in two sections and just comment about uh, what's going on in this and then draw our attention to our great creator God. Uh, this morning we started a new section of the Jacob stories. Uh, I call these stories the Laban Chronicles. They go from Genesis 29 through 31, and I call them that because primarily Jacob will be interacting with a man by the name of Laban. This is the same Laban who reluctantly gave his sister Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. And uh, in this story, he uh, uh, will we'll see his intentions about a wife. Uh, for Jacob, uh, Isaac's son. This original story in the Laban Chronicles uh, involves deception. Deception, deceit about Laban's daughters. In this passage, we'll come to an ancient romance story that kind of goes off the rails from the very beginning. Um, The first day is quite unusual in this uh, marriage uh, that will be formed here and then uh, it, uh, it will not have one of those happy endings, you know, uh, the, they lived happily ever after. You know, we're not going to read that in the story. But Moses' point, I think, is to show how God overcame and worked through the wickedness of human hearts to accomplish his good purposes. We're going to walk through the two halves of this story, and we'll see the human actors in the story, and we'll see... Uh, their role, but we'll also um, we'll learn about God and, and what he's doing behind the scenes here. So the story uh, in Genesis 29 uh, occurs in two parts, and those two parts are around two locations. The first half of the story takes place at a well uh, in a field outside of Haran, and the second half of the story, from verses 13 through 30, take place at Laban's home, or near his home. It says we're starting uh, with the well scene. Uh, Jacob arrives on the scene in verses 1 through 3. Look with me there in your Bible. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. To begin this story, i just point out a few things. The first interesting thing to me is the verb that's found in verse 1. It's translated by the ESV, Then Jacob went, but this is not the normal Hebrew word for journey or going on a journey. It could be literally translated, lifted up. When you come across this term in the Bible, a lot of times it's about someone's eyes being lifted up, to see something or someone. Or it's their voice being lifted up so that they can address someone. Here, it's uh, his feet are lifted up to go on this journey. And it may be that uh, Jacob has a new spring in his step because of the heavenly vision that he just received uh, before this. Remember, he sees a vision with God at the top and angels ascending and descending. So I think he's encouraged by by the vision and he goes on this journey. Secondly, it takes place at a well, and the only thing I point out about that is a well is a common location throughout the Pentateuch and Scripture. And one of the things that you can observe, if you look at this, is you can see that this was a place where a lot of the patriarchs found their wife. Um, so you know, it was, uh, you know, you wanted a wife, go to the well, uh, you know, and you could find a good shepherdess there you know, to help you with your sheep or something. So I saw it with Isaac before, see it with Jacob here, and then uh, you see it with Moses later on in Exodus chapter 2, and, and it even continues on after that. Very interesting. But also point out this little phrase at the beginning here, and the, really at the end of verse 2. It says, the stone on the well's mouth was large. In the original, the author, Moses, makes the point that this is a very large stone. It's so large it's going to take several shepherds to move it. Just pay close attention to that as we continue to go on. As we move forward, we're going to find out what takes place at the well. It starts with a dialogue or a discussion between Jacob and some shepherds. So look in your Bible, verses 4 through 8, and you just see this dialogue. goes back and forth very quickly. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel's daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So this discussion with Jacob and the shepherds goes very quickly, it's very abrupt. Short questions, short answers. Perhaps you've been in a conversation with strangers like this before. But he says, where do you come from? They say, Haran. He says, do you know Laban? Yes. Is he doing okay? Yes. And there's his daughter coming uh, this way. Jacob breaks from the form by asking these simple questions to make a statement at the end. And the statement is quite interesting. When he wonders why they are congregating here and suggests that they should water their sheep and go away. It's like he wants to get them out of there. As I read this portion of the text, it was really hard to know exactly what's going on. I'm trying to figure it out. And I think that there are two suggestions that could be true here of this text. It might be, first, that Jacob is rebuking them for their laziness or their inactivity. They're just hanging around, around lunchtime, taking far too long in the process. Uh, This might be like the men on the job that take long lunch breaks. When I worked for a movie company, I remember there were some men who were infamous for taking breaks that were well over an hour long in the truck. Like, eat their lunch, and then they pull out some pads, and they're like falling asleep in the truck on the pads. It was very frustrating as a worker. Perhaps you have an experience like that. As they're taking longer and longer and longer, just thinking, you're just adding time to the end of the day. We need to get moving. We need to get working. Well, It may be that he's rebuking them for laziness. So Jacob arrives on the scene. He's the self-proclaimed shepherd expert, and he brashly pushes them to get going. One man summarized it this way, uh, Jacob's words this way. He said, why are you wasting your time waiting to water the flocks when you could water them now and then let them graze? So he could be rebuking them for laziness. However, it might also be true that Jacob wants to get rid of them. He wants to get rid of some unwanted company at the well. It may be that he wants to meet Laban's daughters without these shepherds being around. I wonder if what Bruce Walkie says is true. This is what he said. He said, The man in quest of a bride from his relatives at Haran wants to converse alone with the girl who has already caught his attention. But that's when the shepherds push back, and in modern lingo they say something like this, Hey genius, the stone over there is large, and it takes a lot of shepherds to roll it away. We can't do it until more shepherds come. Well, as they're talking, Jacob is not successful in getting them to to go away, and Rachel appears on the scene. And so now we'll see the couple meeting in verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. This is where the couple initially meets here. As soon as Rachel comes on the scene, Jacob gets assertive. He steps up to the large stone, rolls it away himself. A few intriguing questions to me here occur in this passage. Maybe you're like me. Two of them exactly. One, how is he so strong? How is he so strong? And you should read the commentators on this. I remember reading Martin Luther. Luther came to this text and he says, I believe it was the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him, and so what he had was supernatural strength. That was Luther's view of this text. And that might be true. The text doesn't tell us that, though. It could also be that he just was a strong person or that he had a little shot of adrenaline seeing a potential wife coming that direction. That leads me to another question. What makes Jacob so joyful at the end that he weeps aloud? Seems most appropriate that Jacob, to me, I think he's overwhelmed at how good God has been to him, how he's led him. Left all by himself, came to a foreign place, not only came to this well in this foreign country, he came to a relative, not to mention one that might, he might already be interested in. And so that's the beginning of their story. Everything's going well. Jacob is ministering to Rachel. He greets her. He uh, then uh, ministers to her, waters the sheep that she's brought, and then she runs home to tell her father Laban about everything. That's when the the scene shifts to its second location. It goes from a well to Jacob's home. Uh, And uh, I divide this final scene from verses 13 through 30 up into three little paragraphs, just like the ESV has divided them. I think those are good markers here. And each paragraph uh, is marked out by a time element. And so he tells us what happens in the first month uh, in verses 13 and 14, and then what occurs over a period of seven years. In verses 15 through 20, and then what occurs in one week of a wedding, in verses 21 through 30. And so let's just go through it, and I'll just make a few comments first, the, the, the first month. Look at verse 13. And as soon, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So this section starts with words that are similar to uh, Laban's interaction with Abraham's servant, if you remember back there. Um, in that scene, the, uh, the, the girl Rebecca comes back to him, tells him about everything, and remember, he sees the jewelry, right? And he runs to meet Abraham's servant. He's interested in the greed. Here, there's no mention of like monetary gain for him, but I don't think it's a stretch to think that Jacob hears about the stone and the power, or that Laban hears about the stone and the power of Jacob and thinks this worker will be worth his weight in gold. And so he brings him back, invites him back, and and Jacob stays with him for an entire month before things get interesting. Uh, Let's look at verses 15 through 20 to see where the story picks up. It says, Then Laban said to Jacob, "Uh, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve with me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I should give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This part of the story starts with a negotiation. Jacob and Laban negotiate his wages for working, and instead of wages, they come to the agreement that Jacob will work for seven years in order to earn the right to marry Rachel, I think Jacob likely could not afford a dowry price here. I don't think he has much. For some reason, his father didn't bring, give him much on this trip, but his service would suffice. Now, within Moses' comments here and their agreement, he notes that uh, Laban had two daughters. He has two daughters as Isaac had two sons. Laban's youngest daughter is Rachel, and what's noted about her was she was beautiful in appearance. But his oldest daughter, the text says, had weak or soft eyes. Now, it's actually a very interesting debate uh, as we consider what exactly that means. In some way, it's a contrast to Rachel's beauty. It might be that she actually had poor eyesight. But to me, it seems more likely that she did not have the same sort of sparkle or twinkle in her eyes that Rachel did, at least from Jacob's perspective. Now, we might wonder why Moses would comment on this feature. OK, you know, it may, and it may be that she just her eyes were really unattractive, quite unattractive, or I think it's more likely that, uh, that he's, he's dealing with a cultural phenomenon here that I think is very important. One commentator by the name of Kenneth Matthews uh, described it this way. He said, a woman's eyes were deemed an important feature of her charm due to the wearing of the traditional veil covering the face except the eyes and cheek. Okay, so this is uh, how Jacob has access to her beauty. He sees within her eyes beauty. Rachel. And Leah, he's not as attracted to. Uh, and so uh, we, we, we have these seven years in this agreement. And he serves for the seven years, and, and that's where we end the story in verses 21 through 30 with one week of a wedding. Okay, look at uh, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did not I serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in returning for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to be his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Again, I told you it's a twisted romance tale. uh, And there's no happily ever after here. At the end of the seven-year commitment, Jacob asks Rachel, for Rachel. And if you notice in the text, at least uh, the way Moses describes this here, uh, Laban doesn't reply. He just sets up a wedding. Crafty Laban doesn't answer appears to cooperate by arranging the wedding, but then he tricks Jacob, and he puts his older daughter Leah in the wedding tent. Jacob is somehow deceived in this process, and there are a whole host of uh, ideas and suggestions here, like from he was drunk, or it was dark, and there were wedding veils, and so on. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us for sure. Regardless what it does says, it says, uh, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. What a shock, right? When the morning light comes into the tent, it's the wrong sister. The language here is very strong. Behold, it was Leah. Imagine Jacob gasping or screaming out in the tent. But behold, it's, it's, it's too late. The wedding is already consummated. There's no return. Imagine the hurt or the shame or the embarrassment or the rage that he felt. Then he goes straight to Laban and he asks this question, what is this that you have done to me? Now if you've been paying attention in Genesis, you've heard that question over and over and over again. Way back in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, God confronts Eve and he says, what is this that you have done? In the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter four, Cain kills Abel, and God comes to Cain and He asks him that same question: "What is this that you have done?" Later on, in Genesis chapter eight, uh, Genesis chapter twelve, Abraham lies about his wife being a sister. Remember this the, the first time. And the Pharaoh of Egypt asks him, "What is this that you have done to me?" In Genesis chapter. 20, verse 9, King Abimelech, years later, asks Abraham the same question. What is this that you have done to me? And of course, just, of course, just a few chapters ago in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac is asked by King Abimelech the same question. What is this that you have done? Here Laban hears this question. Jacob asks us, what have you done? And Laban's answer demonstrates his deceit. It also reminds us of Jacob's deceit. Laban says, in our country, the younger doesn't supplant the older. How ironic for Jacob. Yet Laban's appeal to his cultural expectation here, I think, is really lame. Because he had seven years to make that clear to him. It's being deceitful. But that's when our story takes its last twisted turn. Laban tells Jacob to complete this wedding week and then that he would give Rachel to him as a second wife. The only catch is he'll have to serve him for another seven years. So are there different views about what happens here in this narrative? I think it is best to see this as he marries Leah one week and then a week later he marries Rachel and then serves for an additional seven years. Now, one of the final remarks in this story shows us this is not going to be, this is not going to have a good ending. Moses explains that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Those are tragic, horrible words. What a sad story. This is what happens when multiple sinners act in accordance with their sinful and dark desires. Perhaps as we work through this story, you struggle with the question, how could this happen to Leah? How could this happen? My simple answer is that the fault lies at the feet of two sinful men, Laban and Jacob, and their costly sins will hurt many here in this passage. Yet some of us might come to this text and ask an even more pointed question. How how does God let something like this happen? I want to answer that question just by pointing out two things to you in your Bible. And we'll end by reflecting on the character of God. The first thing I want to point out to you is the very next verse, verse 31. Okay, God's going to address this. Jacob loved Leah, or Rachel, more than Leah. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. God cares for Leah, and he makes her able to have children. But I want to suggest that God does something even greater than that. And uh, for this, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew in your Bible, and we'll end there. Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. And uh, you're going to go to the very first chapter, first verse. Matthew chapter 1. First book of the New Testament, over halfway through your Bible. Matthew 1, verse 1. Okay, and I want to point out something to you right at the very beginning. Uh, you know, throughout the book of Genesis, we said the book of Genesis divided up into all these books the book of the genealogy of so so-and-so and so so-and-so and so and so and so and so. I love how Matthew starts the gospel of his gospel. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This is a gospel intended for Jewish people, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, so throughout Genesis, we're we're learning the Jacob story, and the Isaac story, and the Abraham story, and the gospel of Matthew. This is the Jesus story. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And we're only going to look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. If you keep reading where this genealogy is going, he is tracing the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the characters we've already seen in Genesis so far that are found in verse 2, Abraham, he's Isaac's father. Isaac, father of Jacob, Jacob, he's the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah is brought out because it's through the line of Judah that the Messiah would come. And we won't turn back to Genesis, but you want to guess who's the mother of Judah? It's Leah, the despised one, the rejected one. Her youngest son is Judah. And from her line will come the future Messiah. As we close, this story, I think if properly understood in its greater context, reminds us of how God often redeems human corruption and deceit for his own purposes. This is what God does. He uses sinful men and women to accomplish his plans. Perhaps you're struggling today through your own difficult, Twisted story. Take heart. God is really good. He's good at redeeming things and working out His purposes even amid the most twisted of stories. And it's by His grace we can gather together in this Lord's day and worship Him through descendant that comes from Leah. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this story. It's helpful to us in that it teaches us about who you are. It teaches us about human sinfulness, but it also points forward to a great God who is working even amid human sinfulness to redeem a people for himself. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray that your blessing would be upon us as we go.